The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, <laughs> how you doing? Good. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start there. Before we go there, I'd like to just kind of remind us what the, the point or this, the, the thought behind this series really is. Um, we have recognized that at Heritage within the last year that there are so many couples that come in that are struggling, that are wrestling. And, and they're wrestling because there, there are lies that have been told to them by our culture, by Hollywood, by uh, maybe their own upbringing or their own experiences and living in a world that's broken. And, and those lies have permeated them to such a degree that, that they're functioning in marriage with half-truths. And we find that a lot of our time in pastoral ministry and, and, and trying to care for those that are struggling in marriage is, is just saying the simple things that God has said and then bringing it home to such a degree that they go, oh man, that, that, that is right, that's truth. And they embrace that and begin to walk in that. So our goal in this series was to, to make an investment in homes, in families, um, in, the, in the church here at Heritage. So when we started out in week one, we, we talked about covenant and really that's the base or the foundation for the marriage relationship that that is a promise this is the simple promise that that uh that we make to one another i i I am going to love you come hell or high water uh for better or for worse so like if if things go good then then i'll love you if this is the hardest thing I have ever done, then um, I'll keep loving you. In sickness or in health, my love for you is not based upon what is convenient for me. So if we have this wonderful life together that we hike and hunt and fish and, you know, maybe we do a trapeze thing together or like the, the couple's like ribbon thing where you like roll down in a ribbon from the ceiling or like, if, if that's our life, that's awesome. Or, or if next week you slip and fall in the shower and break your neck and I spend the next 50 years wiping your butt It doesn't matter. You know why? Because I am making a choice to give myself in love to you no matter what. For riches or for poor, we might have the five-star mansion on the hill. Butler made the whole thing. She's rolling in a Bentley. He's driving something awesome. Right? That might be our life. Or it could be a trailer park in White City. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because this is the covenant. This is the promise that I'm making to you unconditionally, apart from anything that you do. This is what I'm vowing before God to do. I am going to love you whether it's easy for me or whether it's hard, whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Whether we have all the things that I think will make me happy or whether we got squat, I'm going to love you. So we started with that kind of commitment. That's the foundation of marriage. Everything else in marriage builds from that place because that is the only place that you can build true friendship. If you're afraid somebody's going to walk out the door the next second, or the next time you blow it, or the next time something goes wrong, or the next time circumstances aren't the way that they want it. If you're afraid they're going to leave in the middle of that, how can you trust your heart to them? You can't. You can't. And so friendship then builds out of that commitment to one another. I'm going to go ahead and kill these lights here because they are flickering and I'm not sure why. You can't progress to friendship and intimacy and closeness in marriage 
until you have laid this foundation of trust, I'm not going anywhere. Now, we might not like each other for a season, but we're going to have to figure this out because we got 80 years together. If I eat burgers, 30. <laughs> right? And so Sam walked us through friendship. He walked us through the idea of, of being friends that are side to side, who take time face to face, and who fight back to back. Powerful, powerful wor- word from Pastor Sam about friendship. And we've continued now to, to progress in this, and tonight we're going to be tackling the issue of sex. Now, uh, for those of you who may be in the room that are single or uh, that are underage, and uh, you're, you're concerned about the content, I promise to only be as graphic as the Bible, which leaves you completely unsafe. <laughs> uh, no, in, in all seriousness, I, I want to talk with you as plainly as I can about sex. And it's a major, it's a major part of our lives together as married people. And, and that closeness and the friendship experience within marriage becomes the basis by which kids learn to trust the love of God. How so? Well, you see, being lived out on a day-to-day basis between mom and dad is the example of unconditional love. It's being worked out. It's being worked out in the way that they treat each other, the way that they communicate with one another and the way that they demonstrate affection with one another. And that lays a foundation of experience that long before kids ever hear the gospel and know about the love of God, they have experienced unconditional love in the home. They know what it means to be vulnerable. They know what it means to be kind and affectionate and loving to speak words that build up and don't tear down. They know because they've seen it in the love that mom and dad have for one another. The exclusivity of it. How it's not like any other love in the world. How it's not like anything. And and here's the issue, guys. Here's the dilemma. We have been sold a lemon in society. Have you ever bought a lemon? You ever, have, you ever have that vehicle experience, you know? When you go down to the car lot, used car lot, right? Now, in your mind, you, this is what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, all right, it's time to upgrade, right? And you go down, but it's a used car lot. How did all the cars get there? Somebody else before you is like, I'm getting rid of this hunk of junk. It's time to upgrade, right? So you go to everybody else's throwaway car, and you're hoping to find a little treasure among the junkers. Now, I remember when I was in high school, I, I bought my first car. I, I paid $600 cold hard cash for it. It was a 69 Datsun pickup. Had hot pink windshield wipers, low-profile tires, little racing steering wheel. looked like it came off of a go-kart. I was so pumped. I'm like, man, this thing is awesome. I was so excited, you know, I take it to school. And about a week later, um, I'm driving at night, and uh, all of a sudden the headlights just go out. And I'm cruising full speed, and I can't see anything. It just is like completely black. And I'm like, ah, you know, so I'm trying to like stop and not run off the road and not freak out. And turns out there's a little terminal. They had like glass fuses for everything back in those old Datsuns, little glass tube fuses. One of the terminals was broken on it. So I, I hit a bump and then that, that thing disconnected and all of a sudden, boom, I don't have headlights. The defroster didn't work. And so one foggy night, um, I'm, I'm driving home and I'm trying to keep my headlights from going out. I have two friends in the car. We're driving back from a dance club here in Medford. I don't know if you guys, have, for those of you who've been around a while, Remix? Anybody remember Remix? Okay. This, this is reaching way back, but <laughs> Remix. Uh, I, I was hanging out there and we're coming back to Grant's Pass from, from Remix and, and it was a super foggy night and, um, and I, my, my defroster doesn't work and so the fog is sticking to my windshield and, and then it's freezing. 
The problem is that other, that glass fuse terminal is, is busted and the windshield wipers are not working. And so the fog is sticking and it's freezing and I can't get the windshield shield wipers to work and the defroster's not working. So I've got one hand, I guess remember what a wind wing is? Little triangular window and you could kind of flip it, you know, I'd, I reach around from the wind wing and I'm scraping off the ice as I'm cruising 65 down the freeway with my two friends in the car. And all of a sudden we hit a bump and the headlights go out, <laughs> right? And it's in the fog. So now I've got my hand out the window. I'm scraping off the ice. I'm, I got the other hand. I'm steering with my knee in. I got the other hand underneath the dash. I'm fiddling with the fuse box trying to get the, the lights to come back on. My two friends are freaking out. We get back to... Uh, to Grants Pass, and as we're dr- cruising into Grants Pass, all of a sudden it just dies. The alternator went out. So we, we push start it. You know those old trucks, you could, you could push start it. So we, we push start it and get going down the road. And as we get going down the road, it, we're past curfew. And so we get pulled over. When we get pulled over, the cop says, uh, turn off your engine, right? I hear the loudspeaker. I'm like, ah, if I turn it off, it's not going to start again. We're going to have to push start it again, right? So there I am on the side of the road with my two friends, and, and the cop pulls me over. I'm like, yeah, we're past curfew. My alternator went out. I had a hard time getting back from Medford. My windshield wipers don't work, and the defroster's broke. <laughs> he says, okay, um, I, well, go home, right? I will just give you a warning. So I, I explained to him I can't start my car, do you, do you have some jumper cables? Maybe you could give me a jump. He goes, we're not allowed to do that, but I'll help you push start it. So I've got a police officer now behind my car helping push start my truck with the hot pink windshield wipers, the low profile tires. And as I'm driving through town, no lie, this is the honest truth, I got pulled over again. go through the whole process all over again. The very next week, I go to shift from second to third, and the gear shifter just pulls right out of the floorboard. <laughs> just total lemon. I mean, I, I don't know what I could have done differently to know that I was buying a lemon. Maybe if I, I wouldn't have been so enamored with the hot pink windshield wipers or the low-profile tires, if I'd actually cared to lift the hood on the thing and see what was inside, see whether or not it ran, take it for an actual test spin. I bought a lemon. Sometimes things just aren't what we think they are. And Proverbs remind us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That is, you anticipate something, you're expecting something, and when... That something doesn't show up in the way that you think or the way that you want or the way that you prefer. Disappointment sets in. And heart sickness sets in. Wisdom teaches us that we need to go into life with our eyes open. And such is the case with marriage. We don't realize how many lies that we have already swallowed regarding how sex and how marriage works. We have been sold a lemon. Ideas that we inherited that aren't biblical or helpful, ideas that, we've, that have been given to us, and we keep pursuing only to find that these philosophies ultimately leave our marriages, leave our lives, leave our hearts empty, frustrated, and disappointed. It was interesting, as I was reading here, I, you know, one of the things that was... Uh, fascinating to me was was to discover sort of the progression of the view of marriage and and sex throughout history and and we are ignorant to the fact I think most of us and myself included I'm including myself ignorant to how the enlightenment actually has changed some of our views on sexuality the Enlightenment had a profound effect on the way that marriage is viewed. In previous times, marriage was the avenue by which a person bore legitimate children. And in society, largely, this was due to the fact that, that most marriages were really about being able to pass on um, your, your property, uh, to declare a, a natural heir, and to, to find some sort of legitimacy to, to carry on your name and your legacy. That's really what it came down to. So it was really about um, leaving inheritance of some sort. And since it was just 
a contract for the purpose of leaving this inheritance, and it was just a utility of society to define property rights, marriage was, in fact, not for happiness. A lot of times, marriages were arranged, right? It was a, it was a business arrangement, sometimes when you were still a child, and, and they would say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so over here, he's got five goats, and I've only got two, and, you know, maybe if we marry into the family, we could partner up and have a seven-goat business, Right? That was the mentality, like you were always trying to upgrade, and you used your kids to kind of do that. Marriage was just a function, a, a utility in society to keep trying to sort of climb the social ladder, if you will, or the economic ladder. It was not for happiness. The way in which you had your emotional and physical desires met was generally outside of the marriage. And the Enlightenment produced the doctrine of humanism. So previous to the, the Enlightenment, people viewed marriage as a utility in society. It was a social contract of sorts. And as a result of that, uh, people did not marry for happiness. And, and, and then comes the Enlightenment, and, and within the Enlightenment comes the values of humanism, which its chief value is, essentially, that happiness is the goal of existence. The ultimate goal of, of living is to be happy. That single little lie began to affect society in huge, huge ways. At the time, it was a radical idea. It changed the old worldview of marriage uh, as a utility for property rights to marriage being a utility for your own personal fulfillment instead. Marriage, then, is the means by which you feel love and experience personal fulfillment. And ultimately, sex, which is part and parcel with that, and ultimately, uh, sex, if a sex or marriage, excuse me, if sex or marriage is not producing the things that I want or value in life, then I should dispose of it. So the idea is if, if this is a utility, it's supposed to bring me my happiness. And, and I, don't, um, I don't experience happiness as a result of it, then I, I need to find what I need somewhere else. So that's what I need to do. And in the words of Groucho Marx, who said this, well, marriage is a wonderful institution, but who wants to live in an institution? Of course... This was only true in the secular society, if you will. This is only true in the, part of the, in the world apart from Christianity as the world continued to shift on its already broken foundation, its already broken way of thinking to another broken philosophy. Christianity stayed the same. It didn't change. Christians held to the deep conviction that mankind was created by God with purpose and intent. And the intent of God from the very beginning was always one man and one woman until death do you part. In other words, the Christian could say, love is what is made. It is not what is felt in the moment. And this is a radical shift from any idea that the world around Christians had. They saw marriage as a utility, either for economic growth and, 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 and future fulfillment or emotional pleasure and happiness and satisfaction in life. And if it didn't meet those needs, you dispose of the utility, you dispose of marriage, you dispose of sexuality in the, in the traditional sense, within the confines of marriage, and you embrace whatever makes you happy. That was the ultimate thought. The contrast of these two ideologies is the fuel for the remaining debate that stands today regarding the nature of marriage. And to a greater degree, it strikes right at the core of the debate over human sexuality and its place in society. The world around us views sex as a utility for personal happiness and for pleasure. It essentially says that the end justifies the means. Or another way to say it is, if sex and marriage gives me what I want out of life, then I should be to free to practice it however I want. 
And that's the philosophy that we're standing in as a society. Now, as the world continues to shift like a house built on a sand sand foundation, the bedrock truth of God's word continues to stand the test of time. The contributions of science and of social movements have further caused a, a constantly shifting understanding of the meaning and the purpose of these intimate parts of life. The women's liberation movement, birthed out of World War I and World War II, where so many men were going overseas and many of them were dying and the women were filling in for the workforce. Out of that, there, there was this, this shift in society where, where women began to say, well, I, I can do what a man does and, and, and therefore, you know, I, I need to be out of the home and being productive and, and doing things. And, 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 and there wasn't anything wrong necessarily with that at its root, but the fruit of it was is that things began to shift to where going out into the workforce was considered super superior to being in a home and being a wife, loving your family, and being a part of it. Add to that the invention of birth control in 1957 and the subsequent sexual revolution that came on the heels of it, where all of a sudden the idea of monogamy and commitment to one person was no longer a necessary thing. Consequences for sin could be delayed or mitigated in some way. Of course, only on the outward, only by not producing a child, but inwardly people are being shredded and destroyed by this looseness in life. And in this environment, it became socially acceptable to change sexual partners like dirty laundry. Things have now finally progressed to the place where seemingly the only people who still want to get married are the people from the LGBTQ community. They're the only ones that are still fighting for marriage. People who are not a part of that community are going, why get married? You see the flip-flop that has happened in society? Where it's been so devalued and so trashed and so polluted that we don't even see the value in what God has given as a gift. Many couples now are choosing from a buffet of options, from cohabitation, which is the most popular, to open relationships, or the pop phrase polyamory, and to the proliferation, and add to that the proliferation of pornography, and you have a recipe for confusion for shame and deep emotional harm. Can you see why we're wrestling as a society? When sex and marriage are a utility to get what I want out of life, I am on shaky, shaky ground. Tonight, I would like to challenge the modern assumption of sex being a utility for personal fulfillment. And I'd like to state two things very clearly up front. First of all, sex was created by God for God's glory and for man's good. There was intent behind it. He knew what he was doing there. This was not an accident. It wasn't like he was like, man, I was, I'm, left over, I'm left with all these leftover parts. What do I do? I guess I'll stick that there and that there, and, you know, maybe it'll work out. Like Legos or something. Huh? That, that's not what's going on. He did all of this with intent, with purpose. It was created by God. For what purpose? For God's glory. To to help us to understand something about who he is. To help us to know who he is better. Is that the only purpose? No. It was for our good. It was built in as a protection, as a gift, as a blessing for us. Second thing I want to say. What sin has corrupted or destroyed... God has redeemed through obedience to Jesus. We see the effects of sexual sin and marital failure all around us, don't we? 
We see how it's wiped out generation after generation of, of children who are losing faith in the unconditional love of a father because they've never seen it anywhere in their lives. The gospel doesn't even make sense to so many people in our culture because they can't even conceptualize the idea of unconditional love. Things are so broken. But what sin has destroyed, God has redeemed through obedience to Jesus. And if we will obey him, if we will heed to his word, even our own sins can be redeemed for his glory and for our good. So to see this reality unfold, we must start at the beginning and and begin to kind of work our way forward. Now, as as a side note, just real brief comment here. We spend a lot of time in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 in these teachings. I get a little tired of it sometimes, too. You ever feel like, are there other parts in the Bible other than Genesis 1, 2, and 3? I mean, is there other stuff for us to talk about? Yes, there is plenty for us to talk about. But I think in these particular teachings, we end up inevitably going back there because we need to know where it got off the rails in the first place. Where did it get broken There's so many more places in the Bible to teach through. However, when talking through the issues of brokenness in the world, it's inevitable that we'll land right back here to see where it started in the first place. And not only that, Genesis 1 1 and 2 are the only snapshot that we have of God's intention before sin entered in, before there there was the brokenness that the world now uh, endures. So it has to be a part of the conversation. So Genesis chapter 2 We're going to pick it up in verse 18. God has been showing Adam around the Garden of Eden. And then there comes this moment where in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked And we're not ashamed. If you're taking notes, point one here. Sex was created by God. God made Adam. He made Eve as the perfect counterpart to Adam. And and in doing so, God designed them with intention. Nothing was by accident or without forethought. Now, it's interesting here in the, in the story. Did you, did you notice that Adam has instincts that he's not even aware yet? God has to actually sort of awaken in him the awareness of, that he's lacking something, right? So God, first of all, in verse 17 here, excuse me, verse 18, God is the first one to observe. It's not good that man should be alone. And then he says, okay, so hey, Adam, I got, a, I, I got a, a task for you. This is what I want you to do. I want you to name the animals. And so the animals come to Adam, and, they, and they, he's like, okay, well, uh, that's uh, Mr. Giraffe and Mrs. Giraffe. Okay, and mi- Mr. Rhinoceros and Mrs. Rhinoceros. And you can see they're paired up, right? Mr. Deer, Buck, let's call him Buck, and Jane Doe. Not sure what to call her. He notices that everything has a counterpart. And, and, and then would you look, as you skip down just a couple of verses, 
Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Here's the idea. Adam gets to the end of the day, and it's like, wah, wah, wah. Right? It's like, where, where's mine? Everything else has something, has someone, has something to share with someone. I, I, I don't have anything like me. There's nothing like me. When God brings the animals to Adam to name them, there's something stirring in Adam that even he is not able to give words to, words to until the verses that we just read. He sees everything that God has made has a counterpart except him. At the close of this short portion of Scripture, both in verse 18 and then again in verse 20, it repeats this phrase, but for Adam there was not found a helper, or when God said, I, I, I need to make a helper who is fit for him. In both scriptures, the descriptive word used to talk about the woman that God will create, Eve, is the same Hebrew word that God uses to describe himself in later portions of scripture. The helper. The one who comes alongside. One who is beside us and helps us in our trouble. In the same way that God helps, to, helps Adam and completes Adam, his wife, the one he creates for Adam, will function in the same capacity to be a blessing to him, to bring what he lacks. The woman that God will create for Adam will function in the same way that God has. In fact, they will complete each other. What he lacks, she will supply, and what she lacks, he will supply. Listen, God is not haphazard here. There's intention. The question at this moment becomes, okay, how is God going to express this reality of their, their need for one another? Uh, uh, now, up to this point... God has already made everything that exists, right? You know, Adam is sort of the crown of creation. It's the, the final thing on the final day, right? And, and so God is not lacking for creativity. At this point, squirrels exist and mushrooms and fish. He could have pulled from one of those options for reproduction, don't you think? They could have been fertilizing like fish. Like Eve goes off in the woods behind a stump somewhere, squats down, squirts out 100 eggs. Right? That, 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 that was option A. Right? Adam comes along later. That, that, that could have been it. Or maybe, you know, they could have been making it like a mushroom. Eve just randomly drops spores and babies sprout up. That could have been it. Getting busy like a bee. Adam's hanging out in the garden. Bee comes, lands on his head. Unbeknownst to him, his pollen leaves. Same bee lands on Eve. Next thing you know, they're having babies. That, that, that was another option. Or what about sex like a seahorse? That could have been it. Adam has a nice little pouch on the front of him. Eve walks by quickly, within a few seconds, deposits 1,500 eggs. Next thing you know, little babies are crawling out of the pouch. I mean, that was an option. But that's not what God does, right? God is not lacking for options or creativity. He chooses something specific. Listen, God is not haphazard. God is purposeful in the creation of sex. In being specific about his choice, God is creating all kinds of responses in the human heart and body. And God did this by design. Listen, this is the thing that our world, our culture does not understand. God owns the blueprints on sex. It was his brainchild. He thought it up. He knows how it works because he's the one that invented it. 
He purposefully located 8,000 nerve endings on the female genitalia that serve only for one purpose. They, they only serve for pleasure. It doesn't affect procreation. It doesn't affect you know, the birthing process at all. It's only for joy. He gave half that to men because their brains cannot contain the 8,000 nerves. God in his wisdom. He came up with the hormone systems that pump your brain full of oxytocin, phenylethylamine, testosterone, estrogen, vasopressin, and endorphins to make you feel amazing and increase dramatically the bond between two lovers. God is the one who came up with that system. God is not now, nor has he ever been, shy about sex. He's not up there wincing right now because I said sex. Or because I made a joke about a seahorse. He's not up there going, oh, boy, that was embarrassing. He's not speaking for me. (laughs) He's not shy about it. Matter of fact, the book that you hold in your hands is way more explicit than you or I could ever even dare to share in polite conversation. There are things that you will read in the Bible. Have you, have you anybody ever done like the full reading the Bible in a year thing? Ever done that? Yeah? Oh, yeah? Yeah? <laughs> like, no. No, I haven't. If you read the Bible cover to cover, you, I guarantee you will encounter some stories that are scandalizing. Stories about people spilling their junk on the ground and prostitutes and debauchery of all sorts. God will use analogies that you cannot even fathom, talking about the unfaithfulness of Israel. He will explain and graphically detail sexual encounters in portions of Ezekiel that will absolutely make you feel like you're doing something wrong to read it. And that's, that's the sinful side. On the beautiful side, God records for us beautiful lovemaking poems like the entire book of Song of Solomon. Think about that. One whole book of the Bible is dedicated exclusively to sex. Isn't that crazy? Is God shy? Is he prudish? Absolutely not. It is filled with beautiful sexual poetry found in the Song of Solomon and Proverbs. It gives advice about regular sexual intercourse within the context of marriage and warns about the power that it has to destroy when it's outside of marriage. It boldly proclaims that the marriage bed is undefiled and should be supported, not forbidden, in any church setting. God never shies away from sexual ethics or the endorsement of what is holy or the repudiation of what is broken or wrong. He's honest and upfront about it. And despite popular belief within the church and outside of the church, God is open about the good, the bad, and the really hurtful as it relates to sex. He does not flinch in talking about it. And the examples in the scriptures are far too numerous for me to even detail to you right now. God made sex. I think he's got a few things that he might know about it. Some wisdom to give us to apply to our lives regarding it. Absolutely, because every ounce of scripture, every ounce of his design is dripping with intention. It was his idea in the first place. Second thing, sex was created for God's glory. It was created for God's glory, verses 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man woke up. And this and said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Listen, what God does in creating Eve and Adam for one another matters. 
because of what we said before, because of the intent. We get a hint of God's intent from the previous chapter. The end of Genesis chapter 1, just, just look back over there with me and check out verses 26 and 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Listen. What was God's intent in creating mankind? To reflect his glory. To bear his image. So what God chooses to do in in creating Adam and Eve for one another matters because it's the demonstration of the nature of God being lived out through their lives. What he is like, what his nature is. God creates man in his own image. Another way of saying the same thing is that God created mankind uniquely to look, act, and relate like himself. We bear what theologians call the communicable attributes of God. These are the things that God shares with us. Things like a capacity for love, the ability to make choices, desire for community and fellowship, All of these things that are innate to humans and the human experience are reflective of the one who made us. We bear the image of who he is. We reflect the glory of who he is. So there is a direct correlation to the way that we are designed to operate as humans. So let's sample those through the text here. First of all, if you're taking notes, he separated to create togetherness. After exposing Adam and his, uh, Adam to his need for companionship and for sharing, God makes Adam fall asleep. And at this point, um, you don't know in the story how God is going to create Eve. Now, l- l- let's just pretend for a moment that you've never read this story before. Like, try and put the details out of your head. And you're like, okay, what is God going to do to create Eve? Adam's asleep. God's going to bring Eve. How do you think he's going to do it? Well, I think the natural reading of the story would, would say that maybe, maybe God's going to form another human out of the clay, right? And that he'll breathe life into her in the same way that he did for Adam. But that's not what God does. Before Adam can have Eve, God has to take something away from Adam. He's got to wound Adam. He has to form from Adam, Eve. Something that was once a part of Adam is now found in Eve. In other words, Adam and Eve are both only partial people. They have pieces that the other lacks. Adam has things that she doesn't have, and she has things that Adam doesn't have. This is best expressed in the words of Adam. That idea of of needing one another, of of longing for fulfillment. When he wakes up and he, he sees Eve and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she's perfect. She, she, she completes me in every way. She's, she's different than me and, and, and unique from me, but everything about her is what I need. She's perfect for me. When Adam and Eve find each other, they come together, they feel complete, and they're content. Through the experience of craving closeness, Adam and Eve are also experiencing and learning something about God and what is happening in God's heart. The longing of God's love. They they, they understand what it means to want to be united, to want to be one with one another. The fact that they are lacking without the other and their heart is pulling them towards one another, the fact that that is happening is demonstrative of the, the love that God has within the Trinity 
and his desire to share himself with us. It's the experience of longing to be known, longing to be appreciated, longing to be loved. It's not neediness. It's the desire to be delighted in. Often in the scriptures, God pictures his relationship with both Israel and the church as that of a husband longing to be with his wife. Through the sexual union in marriage, God is revealing something about his nature and heart to Adam and Eve. This is pictured by Jesus in many of the parables. You think about how many times he talks about a, a bride like waiting for her husband, right? Think about how he frames the, the second coming in the book of Revelation. He, he describes the moment where finally the bride and the groom are gathered together as the marriage supper of the Lamb. That moment when finally his people get to be with him. The celebration of unity and closeness and being unhindered in their relationship. So, the second thing is he created nakedness to forge vulnerability. Not only did he, not only was he separating to create togetherness, but he created nakedness to forge vulnerability. If God wanted it to be this way, Adam and Eve could have made love by holding hands. I mean, that, that could have been it. Like, he could have like a turtleneck on and long sleeves. They could stand next to each other, reach over, hold hands. The next thing you know, babies happen. Right? That's not what he does. He forces vulnerability, nakedness, openness with one another. He forces this, this moment where you, you don't want to be hindered, where there has to be skin-on-skin -skin contact. That's by design. It's on purpose. Adam and Eve are both put into a position to have to avail their entire being to one another. With no sin yet, there is no reason for them to fear one another. And as a result, the Bible describes it in this way. It says that they were able to be naked together and not feel shame. Closeness without casualty. It was the intention of God that when a husband and wife give themselves to one, ano one another, that they would feel free to share all of themselves without fear. The act of lovemaking bring, uh, brings you, excuse me, the act of lovemaking means that you will have to let the other person have access to you physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It will touch every part of your being. And this is by God's design. Now, now think about this. Think about what this teaches us about God. This mirrors God's glory and that it reminds us that with him, there is no need to hide. Don't you, have a, don't you long for the ability to be known without fear? To not have anything to hide. Right now, I got a list of probably about 50 things I would never tell any single one of you in this room. Why? Because the cost is too great. I know. Been around, right? The cost of being completely honest and vulnerable with another person about the depths of how you work and areas of sin and pride and, 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 and how your heart functions and where your wounds are opens you up to the possibility of being greatly, greatly wounded. But with God, there's no need to hide. He has covered our shame. He's taken away our guilt. He knows our flaws, and he loves us anyway. Our closeness to him is directly linked to our surrender to him as we allow access to every part of our lives. And as we do that and we walk in that, we say, God, you can, you can have all of me. I, there's no place in my heart that, that you don't have access to, that you can't explore, that you can't call out, that you can't deal with. You can have all of me. As we continue to grow in that, intimacy and depth is formed in our relationship with God through being vulnerable. 
through being known, transparent, naked. And so, sex was created for God's glory, and in it he separated to create togetherness, he created nakedness to forge vulnerability, and he made it a priority to create intimacy. The writer of the book of Genesis lived a long time after Adam and Eve. Have you thought about that? Well after Adam and Eve had, had gone. Now, reflecting back on the meaning of this mystical event of the creation of Adam and Eve and, the, and their coming together, long after that, he begins to reflect on the meaning of what is happening in this story, in this event that took place. And, and he adds a little comment here. It's like a, a little commentary on what is taking place, what he's describing between the, the creation of Adam and Eve and their closeness to one another and their nakedness and not being ashamed. And what is it that he says? He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In doing so, he helps us to sort of interpret the important pieces of this story. The pieces that are being described here. There's, there's one kind of love that comes from belonging to a family. And there's another kind of love that's unique. And in priority, it's above all other relationships. It, it cannot be replaced by our family of origin, nor by friendships, nor by any other relationship. The exclusivity of this relationship experience is what makes it so deep. This love is unique and should be handled uniquely. This kind of closeness will, will not be experienced any other place in life other than this one primary relationship where you are fully known, fully vulnerable, fully open to another person, and fully loved. This kind of closeness cannot and should not and God does not will that it would be experienced in any other relationship. And even the bond of your original family can't compare. The end result is that, that marriage and this one flesh union and the exclusive, exclusivity of it becomes the powerful bond that safely guards your heart from hurt and from betrayal. It provides a sacred space for acceptance, for vulnerability, for love. And this is why, this is why sexual betrayal is so powerful. This is why it's so wounding to the soul. Because in that place of safety and commitment, you, you say to one another, I, I, I'm going to give you all of me and, and, and nothing needs to be hindered. And, and, and you make yourself vulnerable and you give your heart away and you begin to trust that this person has good intentions for you, that they love you, that they will choose you over their own comfort, that they will love you first. You, you believe that, you trust in that. And then when betrayal comes, when the internet history is checked, when those mysterious text messages come in, when, when those things happen and there's a betrayal, it wounds to the core of who you are. So powerfully destructive. When you give access to the deepest places of your heart to another and they disregard the sacredness of that gift. It wounds us deeply, and whether we're talking about lust in the heart or the physical act of betrayal, immediately the spouse feels the loss, the hurt, the broken trust, and they learn from this act of betrayal not to love you, but to fear you. This damage is not easily Undone. This is why Proverbs chapter 6 gives us such a stern warning. It says this in verse 27. Can a man carry fire onto his chest and his clothes and not be burned? Can you just go out in, in, in a fire pit and just scoop up coals and not expect damage? That's the way lust works. That's the way it happens in our hearts. We, 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 when we walk in that, 
When a man or a woman walks in that and embraces that, they, they gather damage to their own soul. He goes on to say, in verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Here's, here's what's happening. The sexual union between a man and a wife is to be a priority above all other relationships. It's to be exclusive above all other relationships. And when it's not, the same power that it has to bond and unite two people it has to destroy and to wound and to hurt. This is to be such a priority that Paul would eventually write that the only thing that should trump sexual love between a husband and a wife is mutual agreement for the purpose of prayer and fasting. Sometimes people will say, well, J Jeremy, how long should, what's normal? How long should you go without sex? And I'm like, how, do, how long do you like to go without food? Should be consistent, regular. That's the idea. Not forbidding one another, expressing love to each other. Sex was created, third point, for man's good. It was created for man's good. Why? To experience, first of all, the joy of bonding. The joy of bonding. Listen, when two when a husband and a wife, when two people come together and they bond, they, they lose self-identity. I am one with you. I am a we now, not a me. That bonding is so powerful. It's backed by all the chemicals and hormones that God supplies, and it creates a rewiring in the brain that can forge togetherness and closeness in times where you feel distant to experience the joy of bonding, to experience the joy of serving. In sexual union within marriage, the goal is giving of yourself and serving the other. And God wants us to let go of ourselves and not be self-preserving. And, and, and in serving one another, we find joy. Not only that, but to experience the joy of vulnerability, letting your guard down, having a safe place to be to experience the joy of being known. She gets me. He understands me. He knows my heart. He knows how I work. And to experience the joy of eternity. Here, listen. When a man and a, and a woman come together, it culminates in the joyous experience of orgasm. In that moment, emotionally, spiritually, physically, all of who you are is united in a euphoric experience. That brings an incredible amount of joy. It's really interesting. As you track through the Bible, you, you see that, that, that there's, this, there's this push forward to a moment that is coming where every joy that we could possibly imagine is being fulfilled in one moment. That moment happens when the bride sees the bridegroom and gets to be with him unhindered. And in that moment within the marriage bed, for just a split second, you taste a little something of what it's like, a little piece, if you will, of eternity, when all the world is right, you are fully loved and fully known and fully satisfied and body, soul, and spirit are united in bliss. And God is saying, listen, that is the shadow of what's coming. That's like, the, that's, that's like the pale comparison of the technicolor reality. What it's like to be with me and have your heart satisfied and your sin done away with and a new body to see me on the throne and to feel the weight, the kabod, the glory of God all around and to have the Holy Spirit bubbling up within you to experience the closeness of God in that moment. You can't even put a name on that kind of joy. Paul said it this way. It's unlawful for me to talk about. In other words, it would be a crime for me to try and put words to what I experienced. So, three things here, four things, excuse me. 
a word to the married. Listen, trust is the foundation of intimacy. Insults and criticism break down trust and make intimacy difficult. Listen, if you're a critical person, if you're always pointing out the bad in one another, how are you going to get close? The person is afraid of you. You're, the person you're supposed to bond with, the person you're supposed to be close with and vulnerable with, if they cannot trust you, how can you be close? They'll always withhold and self-protect and say, you can't have access to this piece of my heart. Trust is the foundation of intimacy. Second of all, feelings follow investment. Oftentimes I hear people say, well, I just don't feel this anymore. And I, I, I just don't feel as passionate anymore. What is that? That's the lamest excuse I've ever heard. You feel like eating? Sometimes. If you don't do it, what happens? You die. You feel like drinking water? Sometimes. You better be drinking water. Listen, feelings follow investment. Jesus put it this way. He said, where you put your treasure, there will your heart be also. Make deposits. Make investments. Your heart will catch up. Listen, if you can't do it for the other person, can I give you a piece of advice? Do it as your worship to Jesus. Make it your worship offering to him say lord my body was created for your glory and your purpose and you said that one of those purposes is within this marriage and i am withholding myself and i i see that as sinful and i see that as wrong and i repent and i now offer my body as worship to you in the love of my husband and the love of my wife now a word to the unmarried Sex is a wonderful gift, but it is a terrible God. It's a terrible God. It's not what ultimately satisfies. It, it, it isn't even the deepest bond that you can experience. It's only a shadow of the deepest place for us to experience closeness. It's only the shadow of what it means to be united with God. Sex is a wonderful gift, but it's a terrible God. In our relationship with the Lord, we experience bonding and serving and vulnerability and being known and the joy of eternity. And we experience it in its fullness, not in part. Second thing I would say is don't waste your singleness. If you're single, you are freed to serve and follow Jesus in a way that married people can't because they've got a lot of concerns. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Paul was a single guy, and he poured all of his energy into serving Jesus. And he even said at one point in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I wish that everybody could experience the life that I have. I can't command you to do it. Some people need to marry, but I'm telling you, serving Jesus, loving him, following him in this way, it's way better than I could have ever imagined. Thirdly, a word to the abused. A wound to the root causes harm to the fruit. When a person is sexually harmed, there is a cascading series of events in their life. Shame settles into the soul, begins to control you, can make you the walking wounded, either by making you closed off to intimacy and you don't trust, and so there's this sort of paranoia that sets in, like, when's the next person going to hurt me? So you never are able to share yourself. You're never able to be vulnerable, never able to be known. Or sometimes people respond with the opposite of that, which is people-pleasing. The only way that I can feel loved, the only way that I can feel accepted is if, if I just get people to accept me. And sometimes that is through sexual uh, stuff. And sometimes that's just through people-pleasing tendencies. They can't say no because they don't want anybody to think ill of them. A wound to the root causes harm to the fruit. And so if you're experiencing those difficulties and you've got sexual abuse in your past, my, my encouragement to you is to seek help. How do we do that? First of all, bring it to the light. Many people who have been abused feel like they need to hide in shame. And this fear is paralyzing. It keeps them from seeking help. It keeps them from, from coming and talking and processing. And guys, you need help processing that stuff. Seek a qualified counselor. Somebody who can deal with the trauma that you've been through. 
Oftentimes, they'll help you to identify lies that you believed, social issues that you're encountering, problems that you're enduring. Bring it to the light. You can always start with talking with Jesus first and saying, Lord, my heart is hurting. I'm, I'm responding to these people that I should be loving in ways that are broken, and I see that is, is a part of my heart. Lord, direct me on how to find healing. Show me the way. And lastly, a word to those that have failed, two things. If you're a person who's sitting in this room and you have failed in some way sexually, whether that be through pornography or whether that be through uh, an affair of some sort or adultery, there's hope for you. First John chapter 1 says it this way. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, listen, if you've sinned, Today's the day. Do business with Jesus. Repent. Get right. Don't wait another moment. Take it serious. Confess. That's the first part. The second part is repent. Confession is, I, this, I agree with you, God. This is wrong. Repentance is, now I'm at war with it. I cannot let this live in my life any longer. I'm at war with this sin. It cannot take over me. It cannot corrupt my soul. It cannot break my relationships any longer. In the same way that God hates my sin, I hate it too. And if you've fallen, if you've sinned, there is grace for you. Jesus paid for that. Now make war with your sin. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. We all need to hear it, God. Bless your people as they go. In the name of Jesus, amen.